As a, as a kid, I think I understood what Christmas was about. I was wrapped up, of course, with the presents and toys and lights and Santa Claus and oh, ho, ho, and all those wonderful things. I mean, who's not as a kid? But still, after that said and done, I, I knew enough to know that it was really about Jesus, uh, mystery of mysteries, uh, eternal God uh, being clothed in human flesh. I, I remember on our uh, uh, family altar at home, our television set, we had a... Uh, uh, a crash, a, 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 pla- a little plastic manger. I think my mom got it for with, you know, S&H green stamps. Remember those days? She got this little thing and we'd set it out there every. It was the only religious thing we had in our whole house as far as Christmas decorations. We had eight foot tall Santa Clauses. But, you know, this this little manger thing where everybody's one tenth. Anyway, I would look at this, though. And whenever when nobody was around, I just remember staring into it at the little plastic Jesus in the in the manger and I would join the, the wise men and, and the, the, the shepherds just thinking, I can't believe God became a man, a holy embryo. He created his own mom for crying out loud. You know, just everything as you're thinking about this. It was just an amazing, amazing thing. I knew what Christmas was about. Good Friday. I knew what Good Friday was, was about. You know, I, I had an appointment with the cross. Uh, it had my name on it. That I didn't want there to be a division between God the Father and myself, but there was one, and I would have to uh, pay that price, pay the bill, which would be eternal separation from him. But then Jesus decided to pay it for me and went to the cross. I knew what Good Friday was about. Uh, I knew what what Easter was about. You know, that's like the Super Bowl, right, of, of Christian holidays. You know, as you know, up from the grave he arose and Jesus wins and the devil's done and we get to go to heaven one day. It's like, ah, you know, I knew what Easter was about. I could get all kinds of sunrise breakfast and that was my whole heritage. Uh, so I knew what that was about. The triumphal entry, though. You know, I mean, I went to church. And I got palm branch things and would wave them when they said wave them. And I, I liked the little felt thing on the flannel graph of, of Jesus on the donkey. Uh, but I just wasn't sure what, how my life intersected with this. I mean, let's face it. If you don't have a Christmas or a Good Friday or Easter, you know we're all done, right? It's just all over. But triumphal entry? It's kind of an optional thing, isn't it? I mean, if he didn't do that, so what? Right? He's still going to die. We still got to... I mean, it was really... What difference does the triumphal entry make in your life? Let me ask you. Other than, yeah, we understand some stuff about it. But, but how does our life intersect with the triumphal entry? Well, that's what our goal is today. I mean, it's interesting that, that two of the gospel writers, only two, talk about the birth of Jesus. But all four underline the triumphal entry. In God's mind... This has got some major significance. And so what we want to try to do this morning is just unpack this a little bit more, look at it a little bit deeper and, and ask God, how might my life be impacted? Do I, do I live the triumphal entry or do I just know about the triumphal entry? Now, as we're going to do that, we're going to look in the, the Gospel of John. And, and you need to know this about, about John. John uses what they refer to as irony all the time. Two New Testament authors most given to irony, Matthew and John. John uses it everywhere. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is irony? Unless you are an English professor, you might not have a clue. Let me give you an illustration on this. And it's a corny illustration. You've probably heard it before, but it still gives you the idea. Uh, there was a, a man who, who went to a gas station one day. And he gets out of his car and he's pumping gas. And he's just got a very be- bewildered look on his face. Yeah. And a lady pulls up next to him and, and she gets out of her car and she looks in this guy's back seat 
And he's got a couple of penguins in the back seat. She said, you've got a couple of penguins in your back seat. And the guy says, I know, I know, I know. I was just driving down along the road and these things were waddling along the side. I, I don't know what to do with them. What, am I, what are you going to do with penguins? I don't know what to do with them. And she said, well, well why don't you take them to the zoo? And he says, yes, of course, the zoo. <laughs> yes, that makes all the sense. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. So he takes off. The next day, the same man pulls into the grocery store. And lo and behold, same time, the same lady pulls right next to him. And she gets out of her car and, and she looks in the back seat of this guy's car and she sees the penguins are still there. And she says, sir, you've still got the penguins in the back seat. Didn't you take them to the zoo? And he said, yes. And we had a smashing time. Today, I'm going to take them to the movies. <laughs> now, that story is a great, great illustration of irony, because what irony does is irony runs on two tracks. It's a what you expect to happen. And B, what really happens? And irony is, is that gap. It's really a literary device that's used to, to clarify an event and to help us see maybe how we can see things, and how, maybe how we shouldn't see things and how things really are. Well, John writes with irony all over his story. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 12 as we look at the triumphal entry through through John's eyes. And as you turn there, let me give you a little background because every every text has its context. And so what had just happened leading up to this point is Jesus had spent about three years in public ministry. And during this time, he's done some rather remarkable things. He's fed the hungry. Now, today, I mean, that would be big uh, if he did that here for us. But keep in mind, these guys literally went from meal to meal, there was no refrigeration. There weren't a lot of, of you didn't have a big pantry full of food. And the average common person, it was very, very normal to go to bed hungry. It was just, it was just part of the landscape. It's the way you lived life. And so when you met Jesus and he fed you and he kept feeding you and he gave you all you could eat, it was really a, a sign of his provision, of security in him, of how we need not be afraid as long as we're with, with Jesus. He fed the hungry. He also liberated the sick and the dying and the diseased and the crippled and the blind just because of his compassion, because of his power. You know, who can make, I think it's just asked, who can make a blind man see? Well, Jesus. Jesus liberated the demoniac. And, you know, when you were uh, demonized, basically it was all done. Everybody realized there's no cure for, for, for demonization. You know, it's, it's all finished. You, 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 know, you know, it stinks to be you, but it's all over. What can you do? And then Jesus comes on the scene and he looks at the demoniac and he casts the demons out. And, and he shows that his power is much greater than the power of hell. We can imagine what this did for Jesus' popularity. And then Jesus liberates the religious captives as well. Because the, the, the Pharisees, these were the professional church people, because they were full-time, because they had developed such a law system that unless you were full-time, you just couldn't keep it. I mean, it just required everything you had to understand and know it. And so they told the common folk all the time that, you know what, y'all, you are losers spiritually. God is not pleased with you. You're breaking the law all the time and messing up. You just keep trying, try harder, try harder. And maybe, maybe God will, will see you with favor, but you're just really losing. 
And so the common people, they're trying harder and harder and harder, but they realize that they're losing. Then Jesus steps in and he says, you know what? They're right. You are losing, but they're losing more. And you need to know that God doesn't expect performance from you. And he doesn't accept you because of your performance. But he wants to give you grace and mercy and forgiveness. And God is committed to you being a part of his kingdom regardless of how you lived. Well, this is a good message or what? So the people are, "Ah, I've never heard this. Well, I can follow the Pharisees with that with that performance trip and that guilt they threw on me or I can follow Jesus with grace and these guys have never fed me but Jesus does and these guys don't have power over hell but Jesus does and these guys don't heal but Jesus does and and you can see that there is just a groundswell of of, uh, favor for Jesus and excitement about Jesus and this led to some very normal questions this they, they, they would ask who is this guy where to get his power How can he speak with authority? Never heard such normal questions. But in the back of their mind, they're thinking, Messiah, because the Old Testament, right from Genesis three, had been saying one day God's sending somebody. One day there's going to be a deliverer coming. You'll be looking because one day he will be here. That's been that message has been played over and over and over and over for many, many, many thousand years. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and he fits the Old Testament bill as they're asking the questions. Let's go look. Well, I guess he fits the bill. Now, the common people, again, were loving Jesus, but the, uh, I'll call them the uncommon people, eh, not, not so much. Uh, keep in mind that, that, that Rome, the Roman Empire, reached into the Middle East and beyond, and, and, and Israel w- was under the control of Rome. Several thousand uh, Roman soldiers, a governor was there whose job was to keep peace in Israel, and if he didn't keep peace, then Caesar would get, replace him with somebody who could. Because Caesar didn't want to be sending reinforcements over. And so that was his job. Now, in all of our history of the Roman Empire, there was only one section of the empire where they allowed the people of that empire to kind of rule themselves. This was Israel. They let Israel have a, a parliament. Uh, they let them have their own police force. They let them have some of their own laws. And they let them execute uh, consequences when those laws were broken. Because they knew that if they didn't let the Jewish people do this, there would be revolt after revolt after revolt. So they're just trying to to keep the peace. This parliament was called the Sanhedrin. And this is going to come into play in a second. There, there are two parties in the Sanhedrin, right? You got the real conservative guys, the Pharisees, and the real liberal guys, the Sadducees. And they made up this, the Sanhedrin. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones in charge. And one could say that they reached out to Jesus when he first came on the scene. Jesus would be a nice guy to have on their team. Now, they didn't want to get on Jesus' team, right? They wanted Jesus on their team. So they reach out to Jesus. But Jesus isn't going to have anything to do with that. Matter of fact, Jesus uses the religious leaders as negative examples when he's preaching. He said, look at their hypocrisy. He's constantly pointing out the, the evilness of these guys. Jesus confronts them publicly in front of people for their pride and, and for their, their wayward ways and for their ignorance of the word of God. And embarrasses them. But the people here are loving it. And, and, and Jesus is, 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 is creating this huge division between the religious leaders and, and the popular people. And so the popular people are loving Jesus more and more and more. And, and this brings us to this text. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees at this point are hating him more and more and more. And the people say, we don't need the religious leaders. We'll follow Jesus. Well, how does that make these guys feel? And so they're putting contracts out on Jesus. We've got to get rid of them. So these guys are thinking he's their king. And these guys are thinking he's a threat. 
And so this fever pitch by the time we get to our, our passage this morning. And again, in, in, uh, they put a contract on Jesus in actually chapter 11, verse 54. It says, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it to them so that they might arrest him. You know, just just before this, what Jesus did, just to just to add gasoline to the fire, uh, Jesus goes out to Bethany. Now, this is important because sometimes we treat the raising of Lazarus as a story by itself. Well, it's not. It's, it's in the, the bigger story. And what's going on is, is Lazarus is hanging out in Bethany, which is a suburb of Jerusalem, just a couple miles out. And, and, and Lazarus is, he is raised from the dead right at this very time, just a couple days before the, the feast, the largest feast in, 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 in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem pilgrims, the, 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 the Jewish people or the proselytes were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year. But by Jesus' time, many of them had just turned it into one time a year. And this was the time. Josephus says that at this point in history, up to 2.7 million people came to Jerusalem. I mean, that, you'd have to like vaseline your body to slide into Jerusalem to take care of your business to slide back out. It was that tight. And so that's going on. Pilgrims from all over coming to Jerusalem and they're hearing about this Jesus. And they're saying, you know what? Jesus, he just raised a dead guy. Oh, no one raised a dead guy. No, he did. Go see him. He's just out a couple miles out. He's alive. Oh, yeah. OK, I think I will. So hordes of people, Scripture tells us, went out to Bethany to see Lazarus. They're like, were you dead? He's like, yeah, I was. And said, no, you weren't. Dead. Was he dead? Yeah, yeah, I mummified him. Yeah, he was dead. He was really dead. Well, who raised you? And so Jesus, is he the Messiah? I don't know. So this talk is all among the people. And it's getting to a fever pitch. And so here's where the, where the Sanhedrin seeks to take Jesus out. And they got the word out. Contract with everybody, okay? You hear of Jesus, you let us know where he's at. They want to come arrest him. They want to come get him. So what do you think Jesus would do? What should he do? Here's the first irony, and this is significant for us. Irony number one, Jesus chooses the very time the Sanhedrin has rejected for the time of his death. Now, we're going to come back to that, but I wanted to get that out. Chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, I think the video show like 50 people. It's, it's, this, is, this is thousands. The Pharisees in, in a moment are going to look at this crowd and say the whole world has gone after him. So, I mean, this was huge. They took him palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, if you're Jesus 
And, and you know that the, that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, just have a contract put out on you. And everybody is in on it in Jerusalem. Personally, when you go to Jerusalem, it's probably time to stay away. I mean, I've had bullies chase me in the past. And, and I did everything I could to slide in the back door and to not be seen, I'm telling you. And if you're Jesus and if you've got to go to Jerusalem, don't you think you're going to slide in the back door and come in under cover of darkness and maybe incognito? What does Jesus do? He organizes a parade right here, right? A parade right down Main Street in the middle of the day, you know, with himself as the guest of honor, right in front of the Sanhedrin's headquarters. You know, what is he doing? What's he thinking? He's got them all noisemakers and he's going, disciples pass out those palms. You know, and he's just really trying to make a big, big noise here. And it's almost kind of humorous. I mean, it could be that the Sanhedrin guys are all in their headquarters. They're going, okay, now we've got to get Jesus, but he's tricky. So where is he hiding? I don't know. Meanwhile, they're, what's that noise going on outside? I don't, I don't know. But, but he's tricky. We've got to find him, but I don't know what rock he might be on. And they're hearing, somebody go stop those people screaming. I can't concentrate. And they look out the window and there's Jesus on a donkey going... Now, what, what is Jesus saying? What's he doing? This is, this is important because he's not trying to, to, to show these guys up. He's not trying to say, oh, yeah, listen, I'm going to let you know who's really in power here. What Jesus is, is doing for these folk is, is he's, he's forcing their hand. And this, this is huge that Jesus is forcing their hand. Um, let me see. We've got a couple of texts. Because the Sanhedrin had tried to kill Jesus many times. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now, notice why they didn't take him because he cleverly got away. No, no, it just wasn't his time yet. Right. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. You know, we could do a series just on these two verses, couldn't we? Sovereignty of God. It's just not his time. But yet we don't hide behind the sovereignty of God. We've got to be wise. We have we have a responsibility. Next, it says, again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Luke 4, they got up, drove him out of the town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Matthew 26, verse 3, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. The, the Pharisees had, had tried all kinds of ways to get rid of Jesus. They, were going to, they tried the more civil ways as well. You know, the gossip and the framing and the, 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 the trying to belittle Jesus and, and throw sticky wickets at him and engage him in theological debate. You had the, the Pharisees were the, the Harvard PhDs, divinity school people. And Jesus was a you know, country bumpkin from Galilee, you know, used car salesman slash magician. And they thought, we get into a debate with him. Of course, we'll clobber him. But every theological debate they get into with Jesus, they walk away with egg on their face. Jesus looks even more credible than before. And so they, they come up with a plan. And they said, look, it, we got to get serious here. Let's, let's come up with a plan to get rid of Jesus. But notice the one part of the plan that they underline. But not during the feast. Okay, we can arrest them during the feast, but we can't kill them because there are 2.7 million pilgrims here who kind of like them. And we just don't want to start a riot. So let's just get them out of the way, hide them in a dungeon, wait till they're gone, and then we'll take care of them. So why is Jesus doing this parade? He's doing the parade to say, 
this is the time. I mean, up to this point. Remember, he'd take the, the demons who wanted to scream, I know who you are. He, he rebuked them, wouldn't let them talk. And people who knew who he was, he'd say, shh, don't tell anybody. Uh, even up to just a couple days ago, he, w- he was saying, it's not yet my time. But here he's saying, it's time. I, I just think this is, this is amazing. This blows my mind because in the fallen world, you've got evil. You've got, you've got evil plots, which are not, God is not the author of. But yet, God is sovereign over those, isn't he? Our lives are not in the hands of wicked people and, and, and those kind of things. He's still sovereign over those. And even though they're saying, not now, Jesus says, oh, yeah, no, now. Because he knows he has to die in a couple of days. He has to die on Passover. Because Passover, you know the story of Passover. It's, it's, it's the, the, the time when the curse, the tenth plague was coming on all of Egypt. And, and that night, the angel of death was going to come and he was going to take out the firstborn of every household. Unless you, you, you sacrificed a lamb and you took its blood and you put it on your doorframe, then the angel of death would pass over. And for, for many, 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 many years, the Jewish people have been celebrating this. And the Passover lambs were going to be uh, sacrificed just just a couple of days. And Jesus knew that he as the Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, would have to be sacrificed that same time. And so even though the, the Sanhedrin say, not now, Jesus say, no, oh, yeah, no, it's now. It's the time. Now, here's the lesson with it. He's in control even when it seems like he's not. That's an incredible, incredible lesson because you've got a situation in your life where you're thinking like, you know what, you know what, God, it's really, really important for you to show up right about now. It's a good time for you to show up. Yeah, it's really a good time for you to show up. It reminds me of the Mary Martha deal. Remember, they called Jesus and they said, hey, Lazarus, the one whom you love is sick. You better get here and heal him. And Jesus intentionally stays back till Lazarus dies. They put him in the grave and then Jesus shows up. And remember, Martha runs out and she says, Lord, for crying out loud, where you been? Don't you know if you were to get here on time, you, would have, you could have healed them. But now it's too late. And the assumption, of course, is that there's a time window. And if he doesn't act within that time window, it's going to be too late. And she doesn't know Jesus very well, does she? And, and, and so he acts outside that time window more glorious than before. And he's saying, Martha, you don't understand. There's a lot of pilgrims in Jerusalem and, and they hear me healing somebody, that's not going to be a big deal. They need to see me raising somebody from the dead. There's just a lot of other variables going on that Martha just doesn't know. And, and may I suggest for you and for me, there's a lot of other variables going on in our life that we don't know. But his timing is perfect. And he's in control. And the issue isn't to say, I give up. I quit on you. You obviously are, aren't, aren't around. The, the, the issue is to say, I don't understand God. And I really think right now would be a great time for you to show up. But I trust you. I trust you. Trust is not dependent on our situation or circumstances. It's something we choose. And, and it's not, I can't trust him. No, 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 no. You've chosen to not trust him. Um, so he, he is in control even when it seems like he's not. Now, the second irony we see out of this. is that Jesus enters Jerusalem as the crowd unwittingly shouts, Hosanna, save us, which is why Jesus did, in fact, come. 
chapter 12, verse 13. It says they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, no one knows for sure, but most commentators think that by this point in history, the word Hosanna had pretty much deteriorated into kind of a hooray, just a religio-political hooray. No one really followed the meaning of it anymore. But John knows and his readers know that what the word really means is to save us now, which is exactly why Jesus was coming. Hooray, Jesus. Um, if, in fact, they, they did understand what the term meant, they probably didn't understand it in a spiritual sense. Matter of fact, if Jesus would have told them a spiritual, they would have just been discouraged. I've come to save you from your sins. It's like, my sins. Are you serious? I'll try better tomorrow. Forget the sins. Listen, Rome is what you need to be dealing with here. Rome is the issue. And saying, put yourself in these guys' shoes. They paid their taxes. And their taxes were a lot. I mean, sometimes the vast majority of their money went to their taxes to pay for the Roman guards to be there. Who killed your brother. Who abused your sister. Who beat up your parents who mock your God, who constantly grieve you grief. You've got to pay for these guys to be there. I mean, for crying out loud, of course there's hatred there. Jesus, no, 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 not sin. The issue is the Romans. You've got to get rid of the Romans. See, that's the problem. And then they, they, they wave palms. You know, the palm is an anti-Roman, anti-foreigner symbol. It, 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 the, the palm is, to the Romans, what a white KKK hood would be to an African-American. It's a sign of, of hate. It's a, what they're really doing when they're waving the palms is they're shoving their fist in the Rome's face saying, ha, 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 you're going to get yours. We got a guy here who heals people from the dead. You're done. You're finished. It's um, 150 years before this. The, the Syrians had come through and they took over Jerusalem. They desecrated the temple. Big mess. Simon Maccabeus got together a, a group of, of rebels, zealots, and they, they chased the Syrians out. And when they came back into town, guess what happened? There was a parade. The people had lined up and they were waving palm branches and they were saying some of the exact same things they were saying about Jesus. They were looking for a military leader. They weren't looking for a spiritual leader in, in any way. Um, now, the, 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 the lesson here is that Jesus is working. Can we see the lesson here? He's working even when I am unaware. Verse 16, it says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and they had done these things to him. Jesus' working in my life and your life is not dependent on our being omniscient. If you don't see him, you don't feel him, you think he's on the other side of the world, it's irrelevant. He's working as he was, was, as he was working here. And the amazing thing to me about this text, and this is, so, this is huge for us, is because all the people are singing, aren't they? The praises, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But what are they thinking? 
They're expecting Jesus to be their celestial bodyguard, right? To right their wrongs, to, to take care of things for them. That's what they're expecting Jesus to do. So they're praising. So you wonder on Sunday morning how many folk are praising Jesus, 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 Jesus. But in the back of their head, maybe life is going well for them. And they're thinking my life is going well because Jesus makes it go well. Or I got a favorable doctor's report and that was Jesus and things are going good and I got the promotion, Jesus, Jesus. But if the wheels come off, what happens? They start singing the second verse, don't they? No more hosannas. The word is crucify now because I don't want a Jesus... I don't want a Jesus who's interested in in spiritual things and sin issues and and things like joy and peace. I want one who's going to take care of my wrongs now. And if he's not going to do it, I have no need for him. It's it's it's, I have to check myself. I'm very grateful for, for God's the times he answers prayer, the times that he gives me things that are incredible, that I certainly don't deserve. And we have issues. We certainly should bring our issues before him. He tells us, don't be anxious for anything, right? But let a request be made known to him. But we have to keep in mind that, that, that he's not our genie, right? And, and his agenda, the top thing on, on his agenda is not my happiness. It's my holiness. And he's not here to deal with my superficial things. He may, but he wants to get so much deeper not interested in superficial happiness. He wants joy. He doesn't want the peace from the Romans. That's just going to be a few years, but you're going to spend eternity someplace in peace with God. And we often don't want that for the sake of the temporal. That, that's a scary thing for me in our praise. Even though we're praising, we can be rejecting. There's a third irony here, though. And that's that they reject Christ because they fear judgment from the Romans when in reality their rejection of Christ will bring just that. This is a a fascinating deal for me. John 11. Listen to this. uh, Verse 45. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who came to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that's raising Lazarus, they put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then look at the then. This is important. What were they really afraid of? And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, what Caiaphas was saying here, basically, is he was saying, killing this guy, I know that goes against everything we're supposed to be about. However, there's too much at stake here. We have to let this one man die. We have to get rid of him in order to preserve the nation. But what, this is that second, second rail, what do his words really mean? That Jesus really had, did have to die for the nation. I mean, John just writes this all over the place. It says he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the, for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them, and make them one. Uh, you, you can, we can see this um, Luke 19, a little, little bit clearer. 
Get in verse 37, I think. It says, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. This is Luke's version of the triumphal entry. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Then some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, you wonder, why was Jesus weeping? And the word for weeping is, is, is bawling. I mean, it's sobbing here. There's a word for crying. This is not the one. So it's not Jesus riding on the donkey and this one tear comes down his face. It's not, he is bent over. He is sobbing. He is shaking. You got to, this is quite the scene. Can you picture this? All the people are cheering, Jesus, Jesus. They got the palms going and the Pharisees are growling in the background. And there's Jesus on the donkey kind of sobbing and crying. It's like, what a, a wild thing is going on here. And why is Jesus crying? And one might think, well, I guess he knows he's going to have to die in a, in a couple of days. That would make anybody cry, right? But that's not his, his reason for crying. Verse 42, uh, uh, he says, if you, he's talking to, to Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies, it's the Romans, will build an embankment against you. And encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's amazing. There's a lot of bad things that happen in life that you can't advert. But you know what? This one could have been adverted. This is a prophecy that's going to happen about 40 years from this point. 70 A.D., General Titus comes in and he, he horrific siege on, on Jerusalem. They're walled up. They kick the Romans out and then they, they walled up. And so the Roman army surrounds. They bust down the walls. They, they completely uh, t- take out the walls. They go to the temple. They burn it down completely. Never, it hasn't been rebuilt yet. They burn down all the main buildings in Jerusalem. They massacre tens of thousands of men. And women and teenagers and children and babies. It was horrific. And Jesus is saying, you trying to, to avoid the, the Romans. You were so afraid of the Romans. And you rejected me because you thought that, that accepting me would, would, would cause judgment from the Romans. But actually, it's the other way around. You're rejecting me will bring judgment from the Romans. Now, this is, this is the deal for us. So often, how often? Do we see what Jesus says and we reject it because we're afraid that, that if we accept it, it's going to end up in judgment. It's going to end up with ridicule and it's going to end up with, with we'll never get that promotion and we're never going to, life's going to go bad. I'm never going to get married and tough things are going to happen if I accept what Jesus says. So I'm going to reject what Jesus says. And so we get this and, and, and we realize it's a much greater mess than we ever could have thought though the lesson is the fact that he might cry while we're praising and that looks like this the gal who comes to church and she's praising god and she's praising jesus but she knows what jesus says about uh, uh your spouse but she blows it off 
because she's afraid she's never going to get one. So she she gets this guy and she chases him, ultimately gets him. And he takes her away from her parents. He messes her up with her friends. She adopts his lifestyle. She, he separates her from God. And she realizes the pain and the guilt and the, the garbage she's living with is so much worse than ever that the single loneliness ever would have been. And Jesus cries. Jesus cries when folk would come to church and they're praising and praising and praising him, the businessman. But he goes back to work and he says, if I apply the stuff, Jesus says, you know what? I, I'm going to lose my job and I'll never get ahead and I'm not going to be able to fulfill my quota. And I'm going to look bad in the boss's eyes. And so he, he blows off his integrity and his reputation in the name of Christ. And he gets that promotion and he looks back and he realizes it cost him his family. And Jesus said, you think by rejecting me, you're going to avoid judgment. No, it never works that way. When, 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 you, when, you, when you accept me, you're going to avoid judgment. When you reject me, there's always judgment associated with it. When folk come and they praise God, praise God, praise God. And then they, they leave. And the next day they are obsessed with their materialism stuff. And Jesus cries, you're praising me. You're praising me because he knows our heart. There, that first triumphal entry, two millennium ago, there were three groups of people there. And I wonder if we were there, uh, what group, if you were there, what group would you fit in? There was the disciples, uh, well-meaning folk, a bit clueless, mind you. They didn't understand all that Jesus was doing. They didn't understand what was going on. They tripped and fall. They would falter. But you know what? Their faith was strong. And when it was all said and done, they would, they, would, they would understand and they would walk close. Not based on their wisdom, not based on how cool they were, but just because their faith, faith held fast. There was the uh, crowds. Now the crowds, people are those people, remember the Hosanna, the palm leaves. Basically they want Jesus to be their Santa Claus, to do things for them. And as long as he's doing stuff for me, great. I had a friend one time, she was in a wheelchair and she said, I will not praise him until I'm walking and, and, and there's a lot of folk who have that kind of mindset. I'll, I will, I'm not praising him right now, but as soon as life goes good for me, then I'll be praising him. But then when it goes bad, I'm going to stop praising him again. And then when it goes good, I'll start praising him some more. That's the crowd. That's the fickle crowd. Hosanna one day, crucify the next. Might you, honest evaluation, no hands, but might you be in that group? And then, the, then there was the Sanhedrin was there. They didn't want to be there. They were uh, uh, observing. They weren't participating in the worship. They, they, they were, uh, maybe you would be in that camp dragged by a spouse or dragged by your parents or maybe it's that time of year and so you go. But you know what, you're like the Sanhedrin, you don't have a lot of good things to say about the crowd, especially the guy on the donkey. You realize he's a threat to my kingdom. I have nothing really to do with him other than I'll walk in this building once in a while. The Sanhedrin, now here's the cool thing with the Sanhedrin. To our knowledge, there were two guys out of that Sanhedrin, ultimately, that woke up. And they said, I'm here, I'm in the Sanhedrin, but I don't have to be. Right? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, don't you know, when they went to take Jesus' body off the cross and they were covered with blood, that their Sanhedrin guys were watching them? And then when they took Jesus and they buried him in their own tomb, that their Sanhedrin guys were watching them? You've got to know their life radically changed after this. But I have a feeling that if we could bring both those guys back today and ask them, was it worth it? What do you think they'd say? In spades. 
I can't believe I stayed in the Sanhedrin as long as I did. If you're in the Sanhedrin, let me just ask you, how's that life going for you? You're rejecting Jesus. How's it, how's it going for you? You don't have to stay there. None of us have to stay there. Now, it's what we call Holy Week. Uh, we'll be here Friday night to celebrate, uh, to commemorate, to think through Jesus' uh, death for us. And so I would encourage you to be here for that. And then for sure come back next Sunday as we do celebrate his, his resurrection. But especially, this is key for us, during this time, season of year, to stop, take time, and it's up to you, to take time to evaluate ourselves in relationship to who he is and what he's done. To, to, to evaluate where we are spiritually and to surrender, maybe for the first time, maybe a re-surrender of your life to him, claiming him as your king. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful that you sent Jesus as my king. And you know, Lord, you know how often... How very often I not only not understand what you're doing, but sometimes want you to do something else. And I thank you for your patience. And I thank you for the fact, Lord, that you're working regardless of my understanding, that your timing is perfect. And, oh, God, I would ask you that you would remind me by your spirit, even as I would sing songs of praise, even as I would take time to praise that you would remind me, Lord, of where my heart really is and my commitment and allegiance and love to you. How pure are they? Lord, would you remind us this week of that? I pray for your people, God, if there are any who would be disciples who are just in, in need of a word of encouragement. Would you, by your spirit, encourage them and remind them that you are in control. You haven't forgotten, though they might not see it. Would you remind those, God, in the crowd category that, that they're, they're right to be singing your praise. They just have their, twi- their thinking twisted up a little bit. And God, would you bring them, would you straighten it out and bring them into alignment with your will, whatever it might be. And God, for those in the Sanhedrin who are on the outside looking in, I pray, God, that you would pull some in and they would know the joy of surrender to you. Thank you again for this this week and what it represents. May we be good stewards of it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.